As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We bring you news and analysis every day on the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. But now you can get the latest news on demand whenever you want. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. Get informed on your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Search Bloomberg News Now and subscribe today. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. There are strikes across the land. There is Kaiser on the West Coast. There are nurses and others, radiologists, I believe, and others. There are auto workers in Detroit and sundry others. Within this labor report, an important time to speak to the acting labor secretary. Here is John Farrow. Joining us now from Washington is Julie Sue, the acting U.S. secretary of labor. Julie Sue, wonderful to catch up with you. A hot labor market report at a time where the unions seem to have a lot of leverage. So let's go straight there. What's your latest read on the UAW negotiations? Well, the parties are at the table. They're continuing to negotiate. Um, the president has made very clear something I believe in, too, that when there are record corporate profits, there should be record contracts for working people. And that's what uh, workers are fighting for. So um, the negotiations continue. And I believe that the parties will get there. Are you getting access to both parties to help negotiate a settlement? Yeah, we're talking to both parties. I mean, again, the collective bargaining process is about the parties themselves coming together, working through their issues, finding common ground and win-win solutions. We support that in uh, every way that we can, and we are continuing to talk to the parties uh, in, in that particular situation. What have you heard recently about current demands from UAW? We understand that wage demands have come down from 40, closer to 30. Is that your read on things? I mean, a negotiation is always about movement on both sides. Um, at this point, uh, you know, I think it's always hard to know exactly where something will land. I think as long as they're talking to each other, um, that, is a, that is positive and that is what is happening. You're sensing the gap is closing. The spread is narrowed. 
I'll say it this way, you know, I've seen this a lot. I think that the parties always seem like they're far apart until they're not. So that does require, it always requires movement. And um, I think the continued engagement is a positive thing. And it's part of the reflection of President Biden and this administration's commitment to workers getting their fair share in an economy that is doing really well. We also have healthcare strikes as well. I understand you've met leadership from both sides. Julie, how different is that particular strike? What do you think is going on there? I mean, every strike has its unique issues, right? Every, uh, you know, the industries are different. Um, the specific demands are different. But I think at the bottom line is that we are seeing a resurgence in, in worker power, in uh, support for unions in the economy, uh, and for working people demanding their fair share, saying, you know, enough of the uh, disparities between what frontline workers make and what CEOs make, um, making sure that there is uh, an opp opportunity for workers to, um, to, to improve their working conditions and live stable um, lives is, is, this is not just an accident in, uh, in a Biden-Harris administration. It is very much a deliberate part of how we think a strong economy and a strong country works. Madam Secretary, as you rightly said, we are seeing a shift back in bargaining power towards labor after decades where it went the other way. That's being reflected in a spike um, higher in number of days of strikes throughout the economy. Should we expect that number to go even higher? I think it also reflects really uh, record um, contract results, right? So we've seen from the ports on the West Coast to, uh, to the Teamsters and UPS, um, really results that demonstrate workers getting uh, more in wages, uh, ending forced overtime, um, dealing with other specific issues within certain industries, or automation and the like, addressing conditions like uh, heat um, and other kinds of health and safety issues. So I think those are the, the, the big results. And some of them we're talking about, you know, we, we don't talk about them as much, but there are, you know, graduate workers who have gone on strike for brief periods and gotten contracts that they want. So I don't know what the average number of days is, but I do know that workers coming to the table, being able to have the right to uh, uh, to, to man the, demand their fair share is something that has been positive for workers and is very much part of the strong economy that we've been talking about and the jobs report reflects this. And yet we have not seen that in the numbers on earnings. So is it just a lag effect? Are we going to see it going forward? Or is there something else going on in the economy that's offsetting th those, those gains that you talked about for workers? Yeah, so earnings are up a bit. Um, you know, we definitely especially see that among lower wage workers, which is part of this idea that, you know, we, the president has said, we're going to build an economy that leaves no one behind. That starts by looking at who's been left behind in the past. And to the extent that those lower wage workers are seeing average gains that are, uh, that are growing and also that are higher than inflation means that workers have more money in their pockets, more to spend in their local economies. That's also partly fueling the other effects of the jobs report, which is, you know, more uh, job growth in leisure and hospitality, for example. All of these taken together, along with the historically low unemployment rate, still under 4% for over a year and a half, the longest stretch of the 1960s, are all signs that yeah. this economy is a place, you know, is, yeah, is, is doing well because of good economic policies and workers having a seat at the table. Well, let's talk about those policies. There is something really peculiar going on at the moment. If you think about what's happening at the picket line, 
They have serious concerns about the EV transition and their participation in it. A transition that you are subsidising. Something really odd from my perspective, and I'd love some clarity from you on it. Why is the government offering rich people credits to buy expensive cars? <laughs> so, a couple of things. Um, there is widespread support in the country for um, tax credits that will help to bring manufacturing jobs to the United States. Um, that's part of what we're trying to do. The other is that we do have a climate crisis, right? We saw record heat across the entire country. Oh, without a doubt. Globe, really. Can I just jump in? Without a doubt. I totally yeah, agree yeah. with you, but I just think we're conflating solving a climate crisis with driving really heavy SUVs that run on electricity. <laughs> Are those two things part of the same story? Because I don't get it. If I'm driving an, an electrified F-150, am I really safe in the planet? <laughs> right. Well, so um, we could probably have a conversation now about, about personal choices relating to cars. I do think as a policy matter, the more that we can invest in um, industries, in manufacturing, including in transportation, that transitions us to a place where um, we're not, you know, we're not continuing to pollute the planet, right? We're con we, we have a, a method by which we can both uh, bring down emissions yeah. and also create good jobs. And the president has always said that solve your climate crisis. When he looks at that, it's also about creating good jobs and good union jobs in communities that need them the most. And we are really focused on making sure that that transition does not leave workers behind and that what's good for the climate can be good for workers as well. Julie, appreciate the update. Julie Sue, acting US Secretary of Labor. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is our interview of this bond carnage. There's no question about it. I've said for years at Otto Brown University, the gentleman from Chicago is our definitive financial economist, and that's saying something at Booth School with Lars Hansen, Austin Goolsby, and Raghu Rajan darkening at the door. He's a former Fed governor. On this jobs day, we're going to rip up the script with Randall Krosner. I am so honored you are here with us today. Randy, I'm going to go from a nominal to a real rate analysis. Let's go back to first principles. I never framed a 2.50 10-year real yield. Why does the real yield matter, and how will that new high real yield change our listeners' and viewers' lives? Yes, ultimately, it is the inflation-adjusted rate. It's the real rate, you said, that uh, matters for thinking about what investments firms are going to be willing to make. Because if, in, if uh, 
prices are going up and they can uh, uh, and uh, input prices are going up that's one thing but if you adjust for the inflation so you take out that um, uh, that changes in cost and changes in prices on, on both sides you've got the real yield and if that's going up very significantly that means that firms are going to be less willing to invest are they less willing to hire we've also started to see real wages yeah. grow which is great for, for workers, but that's probably at some point going to mean a little bit less demand. Obviously not right now. Well, that's where I wanted to go. Uh, what's your reaction as a former Fed governor to this report that is not only a massive upside surprise, almost twice as much as what the expectation was, but also with an upside revision to the prior month? What would you, if you were still on the Fed, do with this? So I think look at two pieces. One, obviously, the incredible strength of the, uh, the labor market continuing to be there. But the, um, the silver lining is that we didn't see a lot of kick up in wages. Um, so I'd want to get into that in a little bit more detail, because that's really ultimately what is going to affect costs and what's going to drive, uh, drive inflation. Maybe, maybe I was being too harsh in saying there'd be a hardish landing. Maybe we've got something that's perfect Goldilocks. I find it hard to believe it's possible. After being at the Fed during the global financial crisis, I never say never about anything. But we've never seen something so perfectly Goldilocks before. But if you can have a strong labor market but not have real wage growth being too high, um, that would be ideal for the Fed. One thing that I'm seeing is the underemployment rate coming in a little bit, 7% from 7.1%. It goes to the Priya Misra question, which would lead to a higher neutral rate longer term if we get an increase in productivity, if we see some sort of just general growth that means a higher inflation, higher growth kind of era. Are you hearing anything, seeing anything in this data that suggests that has a greater likelihood than you previously thought imaginable? Well, not the data today, but we have been seeing some pretty good numbers related to productivity growth. And ultimately, that's what we want to see. Higher productivity growth is great for economic growth and great for, uh, for real wage increases for, for workers. Now, whether that's just sort of a, a one-off thing, it's going to take a lot more data to figure that out. Tell me at the Booth School, is you people own the high ground on the analysis of our finance and to say one emotional thing, commercial real estate. The fact is, in the carnage that we're in right now, 30-year bond, 4.98%, we're going to have a normal American failure of restructuring, failure of businesses, new fresh money will come in and, you know, at a lower distress price than that. Will we just survive this event, or can there be lasting damage here like there was in 07, 08, 09? So I think um, we really need to rethink the, the business model of how this is financed, because a lot of small and medium-sized banks have a lot of exposure in this area. You know, the chickens are going to come home to roost because interest rates are a lot higher, so refinancing rates will be higher. There are right. a lot fewer people going into the office, so a lot of the, the commercial real estate values are going down. And, and I think a lot of the small and medium-sized banks are going to be stepping away from this. So the question is going to be, who will be financing this going forward? The big banks don't seem to have any appetite to do that. Maybe there will be new players like private credit coming in, but that's very new. We will have to see but the heart of the matter sustain. here, uh, Professor Krosner, is for the fossils like me, the collective <laughs> memory of our youth of continental Illinois, mm -hmm. out of nowhere. What are the shadows right now that you see of a continental Illinois of portfolio insurance in 87, the leverage of 98. What's the Krosner shadow right now you're most focused on? 
So I do think uh, trying to understand what's going on with commercial real estate, how that's going to affect small and medium-sized banks is very important. And then also looking through, well, trying to look through into the areas we don't know about. This gets back to what we were talking about before, mm -hmm. into the non-bank financial sector. So we've got a lot of data about banks. Right. But just as I was describing, there are a lot of non-banks who are doing traditional bank functions. We don't have as much insight into that. So that's something that we know we don't know and we have to find out a lot more information That's about another that. one-hour conversation with Professor Krasner. We'll do that at another time. We are honored you're with us today. For all of us at Bloomberg, thank you so much. Randall Krasner of the Booth School, Chicago. We're also honored that Jeffrey Rosenberg could dart in the door. He was just looking at his Bloomberg terminal. Jeff Rosenberg, let's take this uh, all-in non-farm payrolls. I have the number here, 455,000 with revision. Take that shock into your shock of working at BlackRock this week in fixed income. How do you dovetail the two? Well, you know, uh, I think I'm going to I'm going to talk about something that we usually don't talk about on a payroll Friday, and, and that's third quarter earnings, uh, which begin to kick off. And what this payroll report really, uh, I think, starts to reconcile is a disconnect that we've been hearing between kind of the bond market consensus, soft landing, inflation, slowing labor markets. And at the same time, a very positive corporate profits, margins holding up. And here's the problem with that. Those those two stories is that how do you get the slowing in labor? How do you get layoffs if corporations are doing just fine with pass through and with margins? And so the reconciliation of those two inconsistencies mm -hmm. is on display right now. This is a much stronger labor market. Clearly, that's what we see in the report today across the board. Um, right. and, and, and so the, the challenge is, and what you were relating to with Randy Krosner, is that this is an environment where rates are going to have to stay higher for longer, potentially even go higher. And the longer that occurs, the more those cracks and that right. vulnerability has time to eventually show up. But this is really telling you something that the equity markets have been telling you, that it's good for corporations, good profit margins, good earnings, isn't a good story for labor market normalization right. and for the inflation story. Uh, Jeff Rosenberg, Mr. Fink's call office called me this morning as I was coming in, and they said, don't ask Jeff Rosenberg anything about inside baseball at BlackRock. I will not. But I will ask you about the functioning of our fixed income market off this shock report. Are there instabilities visible outside of BlackRock that you see? Can we get transactions done as we get ever higher yields? You know, it's been a remarkably orderly move higher in terms of market functioning, Agreed. Uh, in terms of liquidity. I think the issue that you, again, just went through with, with Randy about where are the cracks, where are the vulnerabilities, and Randy highlighted, you know, the change in intermediation. The financial system is much more disintermediated today and in different ways that we haven't seen before. And so the story and the history is that as you have these shocks in terms of interest rates, there are vulnerabilities. The, the challenge is this time will be different in terms of where those vulnerabilities show up. And that will be surprising. I think the key here is that coming off of over a decade of zero interest rates, we established a lot of expectation for the persistence of low interest rates. And yes, there's a lot of liquidity still left over, private credit, 
dry powder. The issue isn't the liquidity, it's now the cost of that liquidity and whether or not you can afford those much higher interest rates. I think the thing to be aware of, however, is that in the private credit market environment, you don't have the same kind of liquidity triggers that you have in the banking sector. You mentioned Continental Illinois. You don't have deposit runs. So you have a lot more flexibility to extend the time period, a lot more flexibility to limit any kind of spillover shock risk. So it functions in a different way, but it doesn't mean that there isn't still eventually the cost to be paid for a much higher interest rate environment. Jeff uh, Rosenberg of BlackRock, I am curious from your vantage point why you would buy bonds here if you see this kind of strength in the labor market persisting. Well, I think when you say, why would you buy bonds? I think one of the key things about the fixed income markets is there's a, there's a, a, a very different level of opportunities opportunity set across the yield curve. And so the front end of the yield curve is really pricing in a lot of the forward path. The movement today basically pricing in now 100% of the final increase in interest rates. You know, if inflation and the kind of one silver lining in today's report is average hourly earnings, you know, if that picture still maintains and the Fed can hold rates at high levels, right. but doesn't necessarily have to go further. That's already in the price. And when you look at the back end of the curve, yes, there's more vulnerability. Yes, we still think there's more term premium steepening to go. But you're starting now just finally to get to levels where you're getting back to normal. And that movement from abnormal to normal is very painful, but where you're getting closer, and that's interest rates that approximate nominal GDP. Right. That's the history of where the long-term interest rates should be, and you're getting closer to that. You may overshoot, and you may have more term premium risk because of the deficits and QT, so we're a little bit cautious on the back end, but why would you buy bonds? Right. You may not want to buy bonds, like 30-year bonds, but the front end of the curve is really starting to get to levels that are much more attractive. And for 2007 and on, this is one of the historic days we've had on Bloomberg Surveillance. We welcome all of you commercial free here through the hour. Michael McKee with us, Jeffrey Rosenberg of BlackRock. Jeff Rosenberg of BlackRock, from your vantage point, is this the one hedge that has worked in this period of turmoil by the dollar? Yeah, it's been it's been you know pretty much rate driven, and I think as you're highlighting this morning, that rate move is reflective of the the I'm sorry, the move in the dollar is reflective of that of that rate move. I want to go back to what uh, Mike McKee was just saying in terms of the Fed, and I think that is what you're seeing in terms of pricing in the the, the last hike, uh, and I think also as well they will recognize that the market is doing a lot of the work for them, and we're going to get the tightening in financial conditions, and they were hoping to avoid an, a, an easing of financial conditions, which is what they've gotten here. So I think that helps to kind of move us off of the Fed tightening path. The real issue in terms of the bond market pricing into next year is we've priced out about half, uh, after the FOMC, uh, half of the cuts that were priced into next year. And I think that's the next move that you can start to see is really pricing out the cuts as you get more of this higher restrictive for longer kind of uh, perspective. And we did see that 30-year Treasury yield across that 5% mark just briefly, but flirting once again with that level. Jeff, how much is this a sustainable rate? You said pricing out cuts going beyond 2024. Is this sustainable economically and from a risk asset perspective? Well, a lot of that depends on this projection in terms of the inflation trajectory, right? So the reason for the cuts priced in, or one of the reasons for the cuts priced in by the bond market is the expectation that interest rate, sorry, inflation starts to fall and the Fed wants to cut rates so that, you were talking about it earlier, Tom, 
not having real rates go up as inflation goes down. So is it sustainable? Yes, but a lot of that's going to go, and Mike McKee, you hit it on the head, uh, next week in the CPI report. It's a very strong jobs report. A big component of the inflation expectations declining is that core services X housing, yeah. which is really related to the jobs market. So good news here right. so far is AHE, average hourly earnings, not ticking up. As long as you see that inflation trajectory go down, then I think uh, you can get that pricing right. in the second half of next year. Jeff Rosenberg, I want to cut to the chase. I've got a multi-standard deviation move in price in a blended bond index like the Bloomberg Total Return Index from the peak of the market in January in, uh, in 2021. How do you frame out, Jeff Rosenberg, that institutions, retail, and retired America will somehow get back to the pricing of the great moderation? You must be looking that in years. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure, Tom, the framing is that we're getting back to the pricing of the great moderation. And I think that's part of the adjustment here is that you may not have that bond market that you were used to in terms of an upwardly sloped yield curve, falling interest rates, a high uh, positive uh, uh, total return, and most importantly, a reliable ballast uh, to your stocks. It's a very different bond market, and this is the transition period, and I think investors have to really recognize that. And so the opportunities are really changing how you hold your bonds in your portfolio. It's much more in the front end. It's much more about flight to quality. Insurance is no longer the 30-year. It's the front end of the curve. It's a steepening when you have a crisis because you've got that rate possibility priced back into the curve. So a lot of changes in thinking about how we build portfolios. Jeff Rosenberg, thank you so much for taking the time on a day that truly is historic, as Tom was saying. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Marina said, remembers a long time ago, she looks at the uh, geology of the Permian Basin and is expert on it. We're not going to do securities analysis here. We'll save that for another conversation on this important $60 billion potential transaction. Marita said of energy aspects as well. Marita, the stereotype of America out from Lubbock past Midland to Odessa onto New Mexico is 1924. There's oil in them, there are hills, and we went out and find it. That's the stereotype, the movies, James Dean and all that. Forget about it. What's the new stereotype? Why does Exxon want to span more oil from Lubbock to New Mexico? 
I mean, look, you can see that from U.S. shale production, as you guys were just talking about. Production has been rising uh, close to 13 million barrels per day today, and it is still projected to continue rising. I think what we have seen, however, uh, the last decade was very much about um, quantity over quality, right? Everybody, every CEO was incentivized to grow production and not return money to shareholders. And that's changed dramatically. And what you are seeing today is very much like slower growth, consolidated growth, um, and we've seen an enormous amount of M&A activity. Companies want to take over right. adjacent acreage, and they're getting more efficient. Uh, and you, the number of M&A deals, we put out this piece a few months ago identifying 80 companies that could be taken over. 15 of that's already happened. Uh, and one of the very interesting things, Tom, you're seeing that is if, say, a company acquires another company, they are not continuing to run those rigs. A one plus one rigs is basically now becoming 1.2. Like right. They are getting rid of the poor rigs, and that's one of the big reasons why U.S. production growth has slowed. We're talking about the synergy uh, memo starting to come out. Our Citigroup with a lead memo uh, this morning. We'll do that later. And Marina Sen, I, I look at this, and it's number two and number four. And, of course, we hearken back to Occidental taking out ginormous and wonderful Anadarko. Okay, fine. Are we consolidating the industry into a duopoly, a triopoly? Are we taking the independents out? No, no, the independents are still there, but what we are taking out are tons and tons of the mom-and-pop shops, effectively, very, very tiny producers, private equity-owned uh, assets as well. What you are going to have is a much more efficient shale patch that actually produces good quality and at a cost where shareholders are happy. Like I was saying, last 10 years, they just grew production and nobody returned any money to anybody, which is fine in a zero-interest rate environment, but that's not fine when interest rates are five and a half, oh, five, six percent, depending on, you know, which part of the curve you're in. Amrita, how much is this deal also fueled by this idea that people are realizing that fossil fuels aren't going away so quickly and that, if anything, they're going to be needed at all times, even during the transition to different types of energy? I mean, I hope that is the realization. I just got back from uh, Abu Dhabi this morning. I was there for Adipec. And uh, I think in the region, it's very much the main uh, focus, saying that, look, yes, we need to decarbonize. And something we've talked about, right, on this show, that let's talk about decarbonizing hydrocarbons. Let's not talk about not having fossil fuels at all. Because if, con if uh, economic growth continues, population growth continues, what will happen is energy demand will grow. Those are like the basic truths. And if energy demand is going to grow, we're going to need all forms of energy, because we're not even in investing enough in renewables, let alone in fossil fuels, to meet current energy demand, right? And that's the realization, hopefully, that's sinking in in the West as well. The East gets it. It's much more for America and Europe to come around to that. Meanwhile, we are looking at oil prices that have been on a wild ride. We saw them uh, climbing. We were talking about $100 yes. a barrel, and suddenly we saw the biggest decline this week uh, going back to March. Mm -hmm. Do you view this as too far, too fast, the way that Barclays does, or do you see this as something fundamental especially in light of what we're seeing in copper and other commodities tracking this type of decline. No, I don't think this is fundamental. It's really been positioning-driven. Open interest in options markets have been very high. The macro backdrop, you know, you've had treasury, treasuries rise consistently for a while now. Oil had decoupled, but it's definitely come back under kind of the macro uh, scrutiny. Purely on a fundamental basis, look at the backwardation. Look at, look at the front month versus the second and third month. That is extremely steep still, whether it be WTI, right. whether it be Brent, whether it be Dubai. It's telling you that the physical fundamentals are absolutely fine. 
you get flush outs like this and you know you don't get five dollar ten dollar moves on fundamentals that tends to be positioning or geopolitical driven right we'll get through this and once we rebase we will continue to move back higher again but you'll always get like we'll never go up in a straight line you know when I was in right. the studio with you guys I was saying that as well right you get some consolidation and volatility and then then we'll go up again and really quickly here going back to Adam Siminski and Paul Sankey at Deutsche Bank a million years ago there's the Emerita sense uh, spreadsheet Excel spreadsheet of demand which is the single line item of demand flexibility or movement that matters into November of this year which geography which kind of oil signals to you where demand's heading? I would say right now it's going to be the US because that's where all the macro worries are that are we slowing down significantly? Is it a collapse? I completely don't buy the gasoline demand print that came out of the EIA this week, but that's what we'd be focusing on, on the US gasoline, US diesel story. The rest of the world's okay. We know where it's headed. Is the US where the uncertainty is. And for people who just caught that line, Amrita, what do you mean you don't buy it? I don't buy it because you don't get that kind of, okay, very simply, you can look at how much ethanol is being uh, used in gas Gasoline, you can back out gasoline demand from the ethanol usage. That still says it's close to 10 million barrels per day. The weekly EIA numbers are all over the place. They've never been too reliable, and off late, definitely not reliable. So I wouldn't pay too much attention to Friday that. morning, inorganic chemistry with Amrita Sen. <laughs> Amrita, appreciate it. Just quickly, I've got about 30 seconds. Triple digit Thank crude you. by Halloween. What's the call now? I want to stick. It's a better call now, now that we're at 85, rather than when it was at 95. <laughs> so I have to stick to that. Okay, okay. <laughs> We'll speak to you around Halloween. And Rita, thank you. And Rita Sand of Energy Aspects. Appreciate it. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.